0: Well, good morning, Community Bible Church. It is a joy. <clears throat> nice, wow. I'm not used to getting such a robust response, but it is a joy to be with you guys once again. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, it is a blessing to bring to you as well. A greetings from your other brothers and sisters down at Valley Bible Church. We appreciate you guys holding down the fort here on the northern frontier. We're, we're keeping an eye on the gates down there in the southeast, and may God bless our area with many, many more uh, such congregations that will preach his word faithfully. For those of you who perhaps uh, don't remember me from the last time I was here, my name is Chris Martin. I'm as old as Shepherd's Conference. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and my wife and I and our four children have been uh, blessed to be a part of the Spokane community of Christ. Uh, here for about 13 years now, so that means for some of you, you're going, "Wow, you've made it pretty far as a youth pastor. And for others of you, you're like, it's still seven years before you get to consider yourself a Spokaneite. So we're starting to learn those rules. I am excited to bring uh, to you guys a passage that's been on my mind a lot, just in personal meditation. And as it so happens, it is from Revelation. So there's a theme that appears running Uh, in California as well as up here. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to follow along. I'll read this morning's text in Revelation chapter 3, and then we'll dive into it. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, we'll be reading the letter written to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, "'I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name.'" Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of the heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Father, I do just want to ask one more time as we come to your word now that you would open our eyes to see, as you've said, wonderful things. And I pray, Lord, that this morning would be of singular blessing and encouragement to this faithful congregation. Thank you for what you are doing here in building up this body together in love to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that here as you do elsewhere one generation after another, until your son returns to fulfill all his good promises. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see from your notes or from the screen, uh, we've, we've got a pretty simple message from Jesus to this church. Dear church, I love you. Hold fast. And... This letter, being one of seven letters that was written to the churches around Western Turkey, we'll talk about that in a minute, it has captured my mind, and it's also captured my heart because of a, of a way that Jesus phrases things in these letters, and I, and I want to get to those first, but before we, before we do, I want to introduce us to this place called Philadelphia, because... Where, where's the, the ladies' Bible study, folks? Where's a, where are you ladies' Bible study people? Okay. If I say anything that's confusing, find one of those ladies who raised their hands, because they're studying this, I found out from Oliver, in their, in their Bible study, and they'll get you straightened out. But one of the things that you notice working through these letters to these churches is how particular Jesus is in his, struc- in, in his uh, letters to the structure, to the context, to the people of these places. And you can't understand Philadelphia without understanding the tale of two brothers. And these brothers, once upon a time, were named Eumenes and Attalus. Anybody ever had a brother? Anybody ever had trouble getting along with a brother? That's not uncommon in history. But every once in a while, you run across an exception. And these brothers were the exception. They were royalty. Their parents were the king and queen of the ancient kingdom of Pergamum. And you can see part of the ruins of that citadel in the background there. Over 150 years before the birth of Jesus, these two boys came of age and Eumenes in time ascended to the throne of his father. Now in the ancient world, being newly established on a throne and having a very strong and very capable brother was usually considered to be a bad thing. That was a threat. What if he was going to make a play for your throne? But Eumenes loved his brother and he trusted him more than anyone else in the land. In fact, when Eumenes needed someone to handle difficult business in Rome, he would send his brother Attalus. When he needed someone to lead particularly dangerous battles against their fiercest foes, he sent Attalus. However, as is often the case, the love of these brothers was tested. In the year 172 BC, Eumenes was coming home after a visit himself to Rome and was attacked by a fierce foe, and Attalus, back in the capital city, heard the sad news. His brother was dead, slain in the battle, and so with a heavy heart, he assumed the throne, and to honor the memory of his brother, he married his widow, Stradonike. You can imagine, then... Attalus and Stratonike's surprise when, a short time later, who should waltz back into town but Eumenes? (laughs) News of his death had been somewhat exaggerated. What do you think Attalus did after having enjoyed sitting on the throne of the kingdom of Pergamum? In an unusual display of loyalty, he immediately divorced Stratonike, returned her to his totally not dead brother, And stepped down from the throne without a fight, returning it to his older brother. Very unusual in ancient history. That affection was tested again later in the year 168 when Attalus went to Rome on business. However, this time Rome would throw all of its political power into trying to drive a wedge between these two brothers. They accused Eumenes of having corresponded with a common enemy And they promised him that if he would cooperate with Rome in helping to bring Eumenes down for his treachery, that they would give that throne to him and establish him with great riches and power. And they persevered in their efforts so long and with so many convincing proofs that for the first time, Attalus was genuinely inclined to side against his brother. And you can imagine Eumenes being a little bit nervous when he hears rumors about what's going on and then sees his brother has been delayed in returning. But when Attalus came home... He declared his allegiance to Pergamum and to Eumenes and that he would rather defy the will of all of Rome than turn his back on his brother. And when Eumenes actually did finally die in 159 BC, Attalus took the throne and, you guessed it, married Eumenes' widow again. Can you imagine being married to two brothers twice each He then set about founding a very important trading city on the southern banks of an important river for commerce. And he'd intended that city to be a permanent testimony to the lifelong loyalty of a brother to his brother king. And I think you know the name of that city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so this morning, I want us to look at this letter written to this city, and look at this letter written to this city by none other than Jesus Christ himself. My goal is not just, however, to to talk about the history of Pergamum and its interesting mysteries, but in this letter, Jesus is writing to a church in this storied city, in this city with so much uh, rich history. He's writing to a church that by all outside regards is, is rather ordinary. It's, it's rather unremarkable in many ways. And I think for that reason I really like it because it's also the only letter that Jesus writes to any of the churches that doesn't condemn them for something. And so Jesus is gonna to turn to this ordinary church in this storied city and he's going to encourage them. My wife and I had the privilege Uh, This last December, of actually getting to go and tour uh, through Western Turkey and through Eastern Greece, the, the places that Paul traveled during his missionary journeys, and to these seven cities that these letters of Revelation were written to. And that whole church had an incredible impact on the two of us, but there's something about Christ's letter to this church that just amazes me. And I have to admit here and confess. I I violated several basic rules of going into a new context one is I've made a slide deck with way too many slides and a program I've never used before and gave it to your tech team last night so if there's anything wonky going on up there that's (coughs) that's all on me I apologize it'll be a little bit more teaching than just preaching this morning But as we walk through this passage together, I hope your heart will be stirred as mine has been to listen to the words of Jesus as he strengthens and cheers his bride, not only in Philadelphia, but here this morning in this church as well. And so I want us to go on a journey together, and we'll start with here. Uh, How many of you guys can recognize uh, any of those cars? Is that (laughs) any of them you? That's where we're at. But we're going to now take off and head for distant lands. We're going to leave Meade, Washington, and we're going to travel to the city of Philadelphia in western Turkey, where a messenger from Ephesus is bringing us a letter to be read in the church. And this letter is penned by the Apostle John, but it is not from the Apostle John. This letter, like the five delivered before it, and like the one that will be delivered after it, are the only letters in the New Testament not written through divine inspiration, but through divine dictation from the lips of Jesus. He is not inspiring the human author to write this. He tells John, just listen, I'm going to dictate this to you. Write it down. This letter's not from you, it's from me. That doesn't make these letters any more authoritative than the rest. But there is something special about that, isn't there? Ah, we've arrived in Philadelphia, and as you can see, it is one of the few ancient sites that is still an occupied city to this day. For a sense of the larger context, here's a map of Turkey and Greece, and you might be able to see that thin little line there looping in the center. That is Western Turkey, or what would have been called in the ancient world, Asia, And so when you see in your Bible references to Asia, we think China, Japan, countries like that, the ancient world, that was the Roman province or region of Asia. If we zoom in there a little bit, you can see the route that these letters coming from John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, would have taken as he sent them to Ephesus, the city he was exiled from, and then just made a loop around that part of the world. In Ephesus... Jesus talks to a loveless legalist of a church, in Smyrna to the fearful faithful, in Pergamum to the occasional compromiser, in Thyatira to the tragically tolerant, in Sardis to the sleepy spiritually sick, and now we arrive at Philadelphia before the last letter is delivered to Laodicea, the unhealthy wealthy show a couple pictures here of the city of Philadelphia to understand it. If you go there today about all you're going to see is these massive pillars, they look really cool, but they have nothing to do with biblical times. Those were Byzantine pillars of an old church. This is an old uh, part of the city that actually would have dated back to the time of Paul. It was a city of shops and commerce. It was was not one of these uh, cities up on this massive citadel where there was a great amount of protection. It was tucked down there low by the river where you could sell goods. And around it were these amazing vineyards, amazing vineyards because Philadelphia butts up against what they called the burned lands, where volcanic action had just laid ash over lots of things. And ash isn't good for some things, but it turns out it's great for growing grapes. And so it made for extremely fertile soil. So this was sort of the green bluff of the region. And we'll see how that actually factors into some of what we read in our letter later. But with that, let's turn to this letter Jesus writes to this church. And if you're taking notes this morning, this would be our first point. Dear church, trust in your unstoppable Savior. Trust in your unstoppable Savior. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I want us to look at this passage, and I want you to note, first of all, as Jesus writes to this angel, whether it's an angelic being overseeing the church, or as many understand it, whether it is an elder or a pastor, the overseer of the church. Remember, angel is one of those words that can simply mean messenger, as well as refer to a divine being. But to this church here, and to the one overseeing it, this message is written, Jesus introduces himself here as the one who is holy and true. If you read through all of the introductions to all of the letters in Revelation, you will notice that Jesus very carefully picks particular characteristics of himself to introduce him as when he writes to these churches. What is it about him that they need to be reminded of so that they will be ready to receive his message? And in this case, Jesus begins with these two character qualities. He is the holy one and he is the true one. And those are those attributes of God that continue to make him a rock, that make him a fixed point in the universe. One of the things that I love sharing even with our youth at our church is if you look at our world today where we are sort of in the dregs of postmodernism, right? It's like the intellectual world has moved on, but the culture is still dealing with it. We're in the dregs of postmodernism, modernism and, and morality and truth and messaging and narrative and meaning and purpose. All of these things are fluid and hyper-individualized. And just like today in the ancient world, it was such a breath of fresh air for Jesus to say, I'm writing to you because I am the being in the universe who is perfectly righteous and who never varies from the truth. What I say you can count on That it will have no imperfection in it, for there is no imperfection in me or my words. He is the holy and the true one. And from that then flows his declaration of authority. They were used to authority, right? They were always having to deal with authority, emperors, and and here in particular, in the area that was influenced by Pergamum, still in recent memory, were the kings of Pergamum. This city understood what authority meant. It was usually heavy-handed, and it was invariably corrupt. And Jesus begins by saying, I am the incorrupt and incorruptible one, and I'm in charge he says, I'm the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. There on the bottom, you can see what keys looked like in the ancient world, kind of interesting looking things. And up above, you can see the Hebrew from an ancient manuscript of Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two, where it writes in reference ultimately prophetically to Christ that I will then set the key of the house of David on his shoulder, and when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Jesus takes for himself this ancient symbol of Davidic authority. He is the one who was promised to pick up that throne and to reign. I think we would do well to be fluent in our Old Testaments. I love how uh, MacArthur was preaching from that. Uh, Some people forget MacArthur's actually a Hebrew nerd. That was his first love and a professor actually had to say You need to learn Greek, John, because you need to be a preacher. And that means you're going to have to preach the New Testament, John. But one of the things that has fueled his ministry is his love for the Old Testament. And I know many of you are studying through it as well. And I want to especially encourage you young teenagers, the youth, know your Old Testament or you miss the story you missed the scope of what's going on, that God came and made a world and put men and women into it and that they fell and they rebelled against him. But he came and picked a line of those people and said, I will preserve a people for myself. And through great adventure and tribulation and global cataclysm, he preserved righteous Noah. And then later he would choose Abraham. And from Abraham would come Isaac. Isaac would come Jacob. From Jacob would come the nation of Israel. From Israel, he would pick his tribe Judah to be the one from which the scepter would come. From Judah would come, King David, and the throne that would unite the nation together, and then it would fall into ruin for millennia with the promise that one day that throne would be picked up by somebody who would be a king forever, and Jesus says, that's me. Dear Philadelphia, Gentile nation, Gentile people, you need to know, as the heir of David, I'm also in charge of you. Because the throne of David is not just an Israeli throne. It's a global throne. What a savior we have. The perfect combination of righteousness, trustworthy truthfulness, and unstoppable authority. And that is what a church like Philadelphia that was going through a difficult season as a church, we'll talk more about that in a bit, facing temptations from their culture, from just the grind of the years going by, that's what they needed to remember is that when their Savior speaks to them, this is who he is. And based off of that, then they can turn secondly in verse eight to our second point this morning. Dear church, keep your focus on the basics. Keep your focus on the basics. The unchanging and unstoppable one tells us to keep our focus on those things that do not change. Verse eight says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says here that he knows their deeds. You'll see that phrase repeated in a number of the passages that, or a number of the letters written to these churches and that is just both An encouraging and a sobering thing to know that Jesus is keeping track of what goes on in his churches. Nothing has escaped his sight. Whether you're a mega church in the heart of a big city and you're writing all the books and you're broadcasting all your classes and you've got all the cameras in the world focused at you, or whether you're a tiny church off in the corner of God's world somewhere, I'm sure you guys are supporting those in missions work in parts of the world whose names we can't even pronounce. And Jesus is as attentive to the goings-on, to the deeds of those churches. And here at Philadelphia, which would have not been a huge church, this is right after the birth of it. He says, I've been watching, I've been seeing what goes on in your church. And I'm going to do this for you. I'm gonna put an open door before you. I'm going to give you gospel opportunity in your city. And he had just told them, by the way, when I open a door, nobody can shut it. Trust me, when I give you a gospel opportunity, there is no power on this planet that can get in the way of that. But notice that that giving of this open door Jesus says is in response to three characteristics of the church. Because you've been doing these things, I am giving you this opportunity. What are those things? And I want you to notice they're relatively unremarkable. The first is because you have a little power. And I don't know if it's kind of said in the same voice that you might say, you're you're cute. But it's not because you're mighty in the Lord, right? It's not because you are great and strong. It's You have a little power. They don't have much. But what they have, they're using. And Jesus has been paying attention to that. It's true. God doesn't give equally to all churches. That's just a fact. To some churches, God gives people with tremendous gifts and abilities, and to others, less so. To some churches, God gives tremendous people in terms of numbers, and to others, few. To some churches, God gives a platform because of circumstances that shines a spotlight on them, and other churches will labor generation after generation in relative obscurity. God is not an equal opportunity church planter just like we're all different. I figured that out when I tried to do athletics. (laughs) Turns out, sometimes God gives you no athletic ability. (laughs) That's okay. What he does say is, I know what I gave you, and even if it's just a little bit, are you using it? Are you being faithful with it? Philadelphia probably felt a little bit embarrassed reading the letters that Jesus had sent to the other churches. In Ephesus, he wrote, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Like, whoa, that's pretty impressive. Or to Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. According to church history, he was boiled alive inside of a copper uh, bowl. That looks good on your resume. Thyatira, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. And then he comes to Philadelphia and they're like, what do you have to say to us, Jesus? And Jesus is like, you have a little power. But here's the thing. That's all they needed. Exercising and using what God had given them, no matter how great or small, was all that their Savior had asked of them. And those other churches whose works had been a lot more impressive from the outside, he actually had harsh words of condemnation and had warned them, I'm about to take your church out because your flaws are as great as your strengths. But to Philadelphia, he only has words of encouragement. First, they have but a little power, but they're using it. And notice, secondly, you have kept my word. You have kept my word. When Jesus said something, they believed it and they did it. This reminds me of the Great Commission, what churches are supposed to be all about, that as we're going, we are making disciples and we are baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we are teaching them to, and you'll notice that's where your translation's all split, to keep, to observe, to do, to obey, because it means all those things all in one. To know all that Jesus has taught, to guard all that Jesus has taught, to obey all that Jesus Has taught, And Jesus writes to this church and he says, that's what you're doing. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. That you're using what gifts God has given you and you're using them according to his word because you've made that your North Star. And you will not be deterred from that by anyone or anything, which is the third thing he commends them. Therefore, you have not denied my name. You have not denied my name. This was a big deal in this culture. In our culture, it comes in other forms, but it was very explicit in this culture. See, the, the ancient Roman world didn't really care if you worship some guy named Jesus. They just had a big problem if you only worship Jesus because their shelves were full of idols. And here's just kind of how it worked. Rome would go in, they'd conquer a nation, and the nation would be like, we worship all these gods. And Rome's like, Cool. Add ours and the emperor, and then we're fine. And then they came to the Christians, and the Christians were like, we worship Jesus. And they said, that's fine. Here's our gods and the emperor. And the Christians said, no. And that became the problem. The exclusive worship of the name of Jesus Christ was the issue. And it became such an issue that then you had to pick. Either you will bow to Caesar or you will bow to Christ. And Jesus says, You refuse to bow to anyone but me. Our culture is a little less explicit, but it's no less dangerous, is it? We've seen this so many times and in so many places. We've seen even in the last few months, big church denominations getting together and debating, will we keep God's word because Jesus is Lord, or are we going to put Jesus next to the idols of our culture all on one big shelf? The church in Philadelphia probably wasn't writing all the cutting-edge apologetics books of its day, but here's what they weren't doing, compromising an inch with the culture. And Jesus says, well done. And that's why, unlike some of the other churches where my message to them was repent or die, my message to you is I'm opening a door for the gospel for you, and I won't let anyone shut it because you're the kind of church I can use. Ordinary, simple, little bit of power, but faithful. And that gives me the place where I can do my work. These three pillars support all healthy churches. And invariably, when any church falls, it is tied to a collapse of one of these pillars. And so Jesus commends them. And in that commendation, find encouragement, Community Bible Church. And for all of us also, find warning. We must never lose sight of the basics. To use what God has given us without jealousy of anybody else, to cling to his word, all of it, without embarrassment, and that we would bow to no one but Jesus Christ. Next in verse 9, Jesus says this, Dear church, in my love you will be vindicated. In my love you will be vindicated. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. This is the second time that Jesus has used this phrase, synagogue of Satan. It's also mentioned in the letter to Smyrna. And here Jesus is referring to those who had rejected the Messiah and were persecuting the church instead of embracing Jesus. Now, we're used to this kind of language from like Paul, right? Paul's always going after people. Peter also doesn't mind calling people vicious dogs and stuff like that. But remember, this is not you're not seeing John the son of thunder showing his personality here. This is Jesus. This is his designation for his own chosen people Israel when they set themselves against the Messiah. You are no longer, he says, a part of this blessed people if you turn your face against His Messiah. Strong language. And in the ancient world, this was fierce. I mentioned that for Christians in Rome, the issue came down to, are you willing to also add the emperor to your worship? That issue was first faced by Rome when they dealt with Israel. Because Israel is the same way, right? We worship Yahweh alone. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Ochenu, Adonai Echad, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the central tenet of the Jewish faith. And so Rome is going around conquering all these places and they finally come to Israel and and they conquer Israel and they're like, okay, add all our gods. And the Jews are like, death first. (laughs) Whoa, chillax, all we're asking is that you add emperor stuff in here. And they're like, death first. You're conquered. There's no fight left in you. We will make you execute every last one of us first. And for the first time in the history of Rome, they said, okay, (laughs) how about this? Pay your taxes. Okay, deal. Israel had the only exception clause in the entire Roman Empire to emperor worship. And when the Christian faith got going, it was known throughout the Roman Empire as a sect of Judaism. And it inherited those protections. In fact, you can read about this explicitly in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about how he stood before the Roman proconsul in the city of Corinth, and the proconsul hears the objections from the Jews, and then he says, Rome's got nothing to do with this. This is an issue between you Jews. And by doing that, he officially declared that it is the position of Rome that Christianity is a subsect of Judaism, and it inherited those protections. And from that point on, the Jewish community violently sought to assert they're not us because they're trying to kick Christians out from underneath Judaism's protections. Because they knew as soon as Christianity is not viewed by Rome as part of Judaism, it will be persecuted as a heretical religion. That's why it was so fierce. And that made these tensions in these communities so deep. And Jesus says, (coughs) I know you're dealing with this there. By those who are not representing me, they are a synagogue, but they're a synagogue of Satan. And here's what I'm going to make them do. I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet. And this part is one of those sections in Philadelphia that just has really stuck in my mind. Our vindication as a church, Philadelphia's vindication as a church, is tied to and inextricably connected to Christ's victory over all things. It's not two separate events. In Christ's victory comes our vindication, and that begins when all knees are forced to bend first to a resurrected and returning Savior. You know it well, Philippians 2. For this reason also God highly exalted him. What reason? He was obedient unto death and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. We sang that this morning, right? We talked about all creatures on bended knee will be forced to praise God Him as God and King. Notice it didn't say all Christians, right? No, everything and everyone will be forced to bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess, will declare as true that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the victory of Jesus Christ. But in that same day, and at that same event, when all knees are forced to bow before the king, he will also cause his enemies to bow before those they have mocked and persecuted. This goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 23. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Or later in chapter 60, the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They will admit on that day that Jesus is Lord and they will declare on that day that we are in fact his holy ones. But that's not all. And this is what captured me in this section. Notice Jesus says, I will make all those who are mocking you from this synagogue of Satan, one day they will come and they will be forced to bow and they will be forced to confess what? That he is Lord? Yes. That you are his church? Yes. But notice what it is here in Philadelphia, that I have loved you. That's one to noodle on. And I encourage you, if meditation is part of your spiritual disciplines, think on the implications of that. Jesus is not just content that his enemies will one day have to acknowledge his sovereignty. Amen, they will. Nor is Jesus simply content that one day his enemies will have to acknowledge that we are in fact his citizens. And praise God, that will happen too. But Jesus is determined that his love for us in the gospel through the cross will be so profound that everyone will be forced to confess not just that we are his, but that we are his beloved. This is a precious remedy against the world and against all its assaults on truth and all its attempts to embarrass or shame God's children. See, I've done done youth ministry for a long time, and doing that, well, some of you, okay, I'm sorry. For a youth pastor, where the average tenure is 18 months, I'm hanging in there, all right? But it's been long enough now that when I came, my daughter was two weeks old, and now she's in my youth ministry, so I feel old, all right? And in that time, I've gotten to watch a lot of the dynamics between parents and children, and you begin to see certain patterns, like that young lady does not have a father in her life, Right? or this young man is imitating an anger pattern. <laughs> you, just, you just begin to learn these patterns. And one of the things that's interesting to watch is you can tell a child who has parents in the home that affirm authority. Because, yeah, well, my dad said this, or my mom said this, and I can't do this, or I can't do that. But there is a profound difference between somebody who understands authority in their life and somebody who understands that that authority loves them. Somebody who just has authority in their life, if they do not believe that that authority loves them, will be constantly looking for some alternative authority to adopt. Somebody who will love them. And Jesus is saying here, that's not me. I am the God who is your God, and I am the God who loves you. And one day, everybody will be forced to recognize that. And if you see a kid who knows that their parents love them and their parents are the authority, you see a kid who will say no to his peers without even thinking about it. Because the values of their parents have become that student's values. Because love transfers conviction. Love transfers conviction. What a precious remedy it is to know that we are the ones he loves. And that in the vindication of Christ on the final day will come the vindication of his love for us. Jesus is and always has been Lord. We are and always will be his holy ones. And the love of Jesus has been our very life and so it shall forever be. Amen. Dear church, do not lose sight of your vindication, not just in the power of Jesus, but in the love of Jesus. And that leads well then into our next observation, which is this. Dear church, my gospel story is your gospel story. Careful here because this one could become a heresy if you take it in the wrong direction. But notice what Jesus says here. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. When we talk about the truth behind our salvation, we use words from our point of view. When we talk about the gospel, we talk about good news, good news for us, the sinner. We talk about the message of salvation, being rescued out of sin. We talk about the word of reconciliation, us being restored to a right relationship with God. All of our vocabulary and our language about the work and the life of Jesus Christ is language from our perspective. And what's fascinating here is that you finally get to hear what Jesus calls this. Any of you ever grew up in England? Any, any Brits in the room? Oh no, so I can make fun of the British. No, I'm just kidding. We talk about the in America, the Revolutionary War. What do they study in their schools? The war of the rebellion, right? We talk about it with language that reflects our perspective. And they do it with language that reflects their perspective. But think about this. No, did you notice this? What does Jesus call the gospel? What does Jesus call the gospel? He calls it the word of my perseverance. Isn't that kind of cool? The word of my perseverance. Not our perseverance. His perseverance. For us, the story of salvation is primarily a story of deliverance. It's primarily a story of rescue. Rescue. It's primarily a story of justification and sanctification and glorification. But for Christ, the message of the gospel is primarily a story of obedience. A story of obedience unto death. And so, what we look at is the good news of how a way was made for me to be right with God. Jesus looks at and says, Let me tell you the story of how I obeyed and I obeyed and I obeyed and I obeyed and I obeyed all the way to the end. The story of his perseverance. And that story ought to be our story too. Because the pattern that Jesus set for us is the pattern that we are likewise to follow. And this is what we saw back in Philippians 2, right? As those who have been saved, we now ought to live the Christian life in imitation of the perseverance of our Savior who was not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped by himself, but who was willing to empty himself and to come in the form and likeness of a man, and having done so to make himself obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And it was for that reason that he was highly exalted and given a name which is above every name. And and Paul there is writing and saying, hey, that's your life pattern too. Stop thinking of yourselves highly, die to yourself, humble yourself, obey the Father all the way to the end, and let him exalt you when the time is right. And that is how you work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, knowing that it is God who is working within you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The story of the ark of Christ's life and the story of the ark of the church's life ought to be the same plot line one imitating the other. Here's the key difference, though. There is something really left out of the Philippians 2 passage. Yes, Jesus submitted all the way to the point of death and was glorified, but that word death needs like an asterisk next to it. Because we ought to submit to the Father to the point of death and then receive glorification. But for the Christian, death is release. It is victory. We have multiple people in our church body this week that are on hospice care in the final hours of their life and speaking to a number of them. There's that tension. Dying is a miserable process. Death is glory. And they're living in that tension. But I want us to remember, we will not experience death the way that Christ did. Because Christ did not bear the physical death alone on the cross. He bore the second death. His obedience to the Father was not up until his obedience had been proven at physical death. His obedience to the Father was until he had endured the full wrath of God. And notice that what Jesus is saying here in this verse is this. Because you've imitated my pattern of obedience... I am actually going to keep you then from that very thing I did for you. I will keep you from the outpouring of God's wrath. I will keep you from that judgment and tribulation that is about to be poured out on the whole world. I will preserve you. That's what you call a really good deal. Our precious Savior says, You're doing what I've asked you to do. You're using your little bit of power. You're staying faithful to my word. You won't deny my name. I'm opening up a door for the gospel to you. I know it's hard, but just keep going. Imitate my pattern because just like you have listened to the gospel message of my perseverance and obedience, so you are persevering in your obedience. And here's the difference. I bore the wrath of God for you. I will keep you from the wrath of God for believing I did it. That's good news. Both of the story of the church and of Christ will end in glory, but only one has passed through death itself and come back. Verse 11 Dear church, don't ever, ever, ever let go of the truth. Verse 11 I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. In the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, do you ever debate that at your youth group? No, that's a first. Nobody ever talks about God's sovereignty and human will and responsibility. Okay, where's your youth leaders? (laughs) At least. In my experience if it has Bible church on the sign it's debating sovereignty and human will in the in the youth group. Those things are difficult for us to understand. But I want us to see here Jesus writing to this church, does he know his own? Yes. Will he keep his own to the end? Yes. Is he worried about them losing their salvation? No. What does he tell them to do? Hold fast so that you will not lose your crown. And there you see both those realities together. The Father who lays hold of us, having once done that, he will not let go and no one can pluck anyone out of his hand, not even yourself. And at the same time, he says, hold on tight to the end. That is the reality of the Christian life. We cling to him not because we doubt his power to save, but because his power to save operates in our lives in this very thing, an increasing dependence and clinging to him. That is the fruit of his divine preserving power. And Philadelphia knew what it was like to have a hard time holding on. This whole part of the world was extremely geologically active. As I mentioned, they were on the edge of what they called the burned lands from volcanic action. They were also constantly experiencing earthquakes. Anybody notice that that hasn't stopped? The whole world's been watching recently as Turkey has been rocked by yet more earthquakes. And if you want to be official, you no longer can say Turkey. Erdogan has made an announcement, and so it is now Turkey. So if you want to sound like you're in the know, You have to say Türkiye, and our tour guides were going crazy because they have years of saying Turkey, and they kept, excuse me, (laughs) Türkiye. This land shakes all the time. And that's why a lot of the sites of these ancient cities are abandoned, is because they would build it, an earthquake would knock it down, they would build it, an earthquake would knock it down, they would build it, an earthquake would knock it down, and they were just so disheartened and broke they couldn't rebuild it anymore, so they'd move on somewhere else. And Philadelphia was one of these cities that was just constantly being knocked down by earthquakes. And so they were really struggling. They were struggling to have a city that would hold together. They were also dealing with politics. Anybody ever seen a political leader make a decision that they thought was a good idea that turned out to be not a good idea? There was a fellow by the name of Domitian, Emperor Domitian. Uh, who made all kinds of rules. He just loved making rules, and they were bad rules. In fact, there, there was a, a, a way in which the Roman Senate could do something called uh, de Nap- memoria de natio. They could damn your memory. They could say, you were such a bad person, and everybody hates you so much, we are going to damn your memory from the empire. We are gonna find every reference to your name Anywhere, and we are going to erase it. And so if you're traveling throughout ancient Turkey, one of the things that's hysterical is looking at how many of these big, huge pillar blocks you see with the names of all these emperors and of all their accomplishments, and there's always a chunk missing (laughs) that's been just chiseled out. Because everywhere you go, every time you see a blank spot in a pillar, you're like, that's where Domitian's name was. One of his brilliant ideas was, we need to grow more corn. Which you might think, that doesn't sound terrible on the surface. But the way he decided to make this happen was he went to Philadelphia and he said, you need to destroy half of your vineyards and plant corn. How many of you guys are farmers? You've got any farmers in the room? Not too many? Okay. I didn't know this, but apparently the soil that grows vines really well is not actually good for growing corn. They're quite different. And so Philadelphia's economy got cut in half overnight not because of circumstances beyond their control, but because a politician made them nuke half their economy. And you can imagine the tensions that would bring into the city as a whole, into people's lives as their livelihood is destroyed. And that was facing the church. So they're in a city that's literally cracked and in pieces. Parts of the city are always lying on the ground from earthquake activity. And they're in a city that economically is cracked and in pieces as they're trying to figure out how do we keep this city going and that would have resonated with them when Jesus says, I get that life is hard and you've got all these things pressing in on you, but I've given you myself, my love, and my word. Just hold on to those things. They'll be enough. They'll be enough. And to families trying to figure out how do we get enough food, enough shelter, what is enough for us to survive here, Jesus tells the church, This is what you need to survive as a church me and my word what a blessing. Hold fast. How long, O Lord? I'm coming quickly. I'm coming back. I have not abandoned you. I'm not unaware of what you're going through. I'm coming back. And when I do, if you're still clinging to these things, you will be a victor. Here's a couple pictures of what victory in the ancient world looked like. This is a, a mosaic showing uh, a battle between victory and defeat. So, victory is the one that has the crown, and then defeat's the one by the pillar going, Oh, I lost again. Their whole culture was built around athletic competition, economic competition, religious competition, and crowns were a symbol used throughout the world. It's chiseled on everything. And Jesus says, There's a crown for you if you will just hold on. You don't have to be powerful, you don't have to be fast, you don't have to be mighty, you have to be faithful, and you will win. Okay, bonus, this is for the little kids in the room. First little kid that can raise their hand and tell me what this picture is wins. Ready, go. Can anybody tell what's going on in that that photo? I can tell we don't have any farmers. Anybody with chickens or geese? Well, my picture failed. This is a statue we found there of a little boy holding fast to a goose. His mom had sent him out to catch to bring it in for the family dinner. And so if you're you're the visual type and you want a picture of what holding fast looks like, it's like grabbing a goose and not letting go. No matter how much it wiggles or flaps, you will not let go of that goose. And if you can hold on to it long enough, dinner's coming. There you go. Verse 12, home stretch. Dear Christian, you are mine forever. You are mine forever. Pivoting right off of that promise that I'm coming quickly, your crown is on its way, hold fast. He then gives them, this is what the victory line looks like, this is what you're holding on for. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Wow, that's a mouthful. And I want you to notice something here. We've had, if you've been going through your notes, dear church, dear church, dear church, right? And now a dear Christian. Because he pivots. And these last two verses, he's not addressing the church as a church anymore. He's talking to individual Christians. To the one, to the individual, to the person who overcomes, who makes it to the end, who does hold fast, who won't give up the word of God. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Here's a picture of a pillar with with my wife, uh, kindly demonstrating how many girth units it has. This is a pillar in the temple of, of a city right near Philadelphia. Again, because Philadelphia has never not been occupied, there's like this one tiny square with a Byzantine church that they've been able to excavate. So we haven't been able to dig up a lot of pillars in Philadelphia. But just a few miles away, This is one of their temple pillars. As you can see, they don't mess around. They were meant to be a permanent establishing sign of power, permanence, and religious piety. One of the reasons why if you look through all of your tour books, you see temple after temple after temple after temple was because people built their houses out of mud bricks. After an earthquake, what do mud brick houses turn into? Mud just mud. There's nothing to dig up but pot shards and mud. But it was the city centers where they built their temples out of pillars and stone, their civic buildings, their theaters out of stone. Those are the things you can actually dig up because the rest just turns into a sludge. But even in a place like Philadelphia, these monumental works of the city were always crashing down because as it turns out, earthquakes don't mess around. And Jesus says, if you hold on to the end, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And unlike people who are always having to come and go and leave and rebuild, you will never be moved. This is a temple that will never be shaken. This is something that will stand forever And one of the things that we saw when we were traveling around the ancient world is that pillars were a great place to write stuff that you wanted people to never, ever forget. Accomplishments, sometimes the name of your city, sometimes the name of the emperor who paid for what was going on. But you would engrave pillars with those names that identified what the pillar stood for. And it was the place you expected everybody to be able to come and to see it forever. In the ancient world, forever turned out to mean until the next earthquake, But that was their hope. And Jesus here just starts unloading with this beautiful language. And I want you to notice how many times he uses the phrase, my God. This is personal for Jesus. I'm going to make you a pillar. Where? In the temple of my God. Not out there somewhere on the fringes of the city. Because, you know, you're just kind of a weak little Christian. We'll put Ephesus in the temple. You'll be like a pillar for the road sign on the way into town. No, if you are faithful to Christ, you belong in the presence of God. And you will not go out from anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God. Whose are you? God's. Where do you belong? And the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, that's where you belong. Sometimes you'll hear descriptions that the story of the Bible is trying to get from a garden back to a garden. It's not entirely true. Yes, the tree of life is waiting for us at the end of time just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Yes, there is a river flowing from it. Yes, there will be a new heavens and a new earth and it's going to look amazing. You know what else will be there? A 1,500 mile cubed city. If you guys have Google Earth, this is fun to do. Go make a cube. 1,500 miles cubed and stick it on top of America. It's awesome. It covers up almost the entire continental US. Extends up way into our atmosphere. My dad and I did some math once. We We both like vaulted ceilings. So we said, what if you had 100 foot tall ceilings? Seems nice, some room to grow. And what if you assume the population density of the United States? A country that has fairly comfortable population density. There's enough room in the New Jerusalem to house all the people historians believe have ever lived all put together. What a city. What a God who can spin this out of his own imagination and bring it down from the heavens to earth like it's a toy. And the name of both, Jesus says, will be yours so that everyone will see you belong to that God and you are a part of that place. That's your identity. So much bigger than Philadelphia. So much bigger than need. So much bigger than the United States. But notice there's one more name. My new name. My new name. I don't know what it is. At the women in the Bible study, they can tell you what Jesus' new name is. Maybe. But Jesus says, I have a name that is reflective of my glorification, that is reflective of who I am as the conquering one. And you will be identified with that too. That's who you are. And I, and I want to challenge us as a church, but also I want to challenge us as individual Christians. In particular, I want to call out the youth as you emerge into a generation in our country that looks so different than any generation that has ever come before it. You will be a pillar in the temple of God. You will bear his name. You will bear the name of the city that is your city. You will bear the name of your savior. Act like that pillar now. Because the God that will make you immovable for all eternity can make you immovable today for him if you will use what little power he gives you, if you will hold fast to his word, and if you will refuse to deny his name in any thought, word, or deed. And to the rest of us, let us model what that looks like So that as we who have been loved by him obey and love others through the example and the testimony of our witness and by the sincerity of our love, we will transfer truth and conviction to the next generation. And that's why it ends this way this morning. Dear Christian, this is important. Pay attention. This is something Jesus said at the end of all of his letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Another way of saying that is this isn't just for Philadelphia. (laughs) This is for anybody who can hear this. If you are a part of his churches, I want you to hear this. It's for us today. And if we will listen and if we will heed, if we will understand, if we will obey this, we will be blessed the letters to the seven churches have sometimes been called the hidden epistle because if you take those seven letters together they're longer than a lot of the other letters you have in your new testament but it's one of those things where when we're looking for jesus's instruction for christians we tend to look at the gospels at the history of acts at the pauline epistles or the general epistles and when we're looking for prophecy then we go to revelation and we skip past chapters one and three because i don't that's not prophecy but you have seven letters written to you dictated from the mouth of Jesus Christ to tell you how to live as a Christian and how to function as a church until he returns. And I hope if nothing else, this will just excite your enthusiasm to go and read if it has not been a part of your, your devotional life, your study life, go and read what Jesus says to the churches. And I close with these words from Revelation 1. Revelation 1. This is how the book began, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And if it was near then, it's nearer now. If you were blessed then, you're blessed now. And if we will hear and heed, these are our hope.